Well, thank you, Paul, Debbie, and Heidi, making it impossible for me to preach now. <laughs> wow. Uh, yes, my own, uh, my own wife, mother of my four children, is with my oldest daughter in California right now, where she is having her first Mother's Day and will give birth in October and... Um, it's a good day in the Bigelow family, and all of those prayers that were just prayed, just sung about, are all very, very real and have much meaning. So, wonderful, good Mother's Day to every single one of you mothers, and congratulations. And as you look to the future, look to the future without fear by laying up all your love for your child to the Lord. Would you make your way with one finger in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 41, and then if you would also put a finger in the New Testament in the book of James. So guys, I'll explain this again for the benefit of you, one finger in the book of Genesis chapter 41, and one finger in the book of James chapter 1. We left Joseph in prison a week ago. That's nothing. He's actually been in prison now for two years under this phenomenal trial. And likely his entire time in prison was, oh, I guess maybe somewhere around six years. Those last two years being the worst part of the ordeal. Something for us to learn in those kind of trials. Sometimes the trials of God can be of such a nature that the end of the trial can be the very worst part of the trial. And I know that's the, you don't want to hear that this morning. But that's the truth that certainly was with Joseph. And what Joseph came to understand was that God had hand-designed for him years of suffering, years of difficulty, years of pain. Hard enough for an older person who maybe has some perspective by virtue of decades, but for a young man, that's especially difficult. The fact is that God is the one who determines how long our trials go. Look at the verse just prior to chapter 41. Remember this from last week, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Remember the double kind of negative there, he did not remember but forgot. Remember, this is the trial of neglect that Joseph is under. He's just interpreted the chief cupbearer's dream out of prison that he would be restored to Pharaoh's right hand. And he only asked, when you get back into your position of power, do me a favor, remember me. I don't even deserve to be in prison. He says like everybody else in prison. And uh, the cupbearer forgets him. And then look at the first verse of chapter 41. And it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. In other words, this guy forgot for two full years and Joseph endured the great difficulty of this, of this time. Potiphar's wife had made the accusation of alleged rape. He had been put in a brutal prison as a result. And so false accusation is what he had to endure He had done everything but the wrong. And now you add to the false accusation the trial of neglect. Being forgotten. Being 
overlooked, being forgotten about. You're unimportant. You have no significance to anybody. Whatever future you're hoping you will have, whatever influence you're hoping you will have, it is dried up and it is gone. This goes on and on and on. This is Joseph's trial, isn't it? Now, if you've got your finger there, flip over to James chapter 1. So that we can grab a little New Testament perspective on this. James chapter 1. I just want to make a couple of comments. James begins the very letter by identifying himself. In verse 2, he gives these words that are the opposite of what we think. So watch this. In verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. A trial is a Christian difficulty. The non-Christian enters into a difficulty and the non-Christian has no clue as to why the difficulty has come into their life and they just want to get out of it. Get me out of this situation. And they're trying to figure out and scrambling. They're emotionally fatigued and they're trying to get out of the, the, the difficulty. But for a Christian, we call a difficulty a trial because it's a process by which God is going to bring us through. He's going to He's going to allow us to come through it. And at the end of it, something good is going to come as a result. We call it a trial and the idea that our faith is on trial and it's going to come through shining like like silver and valuable like gold because something's going to happen to our faith. It's going to be good. It's going to be wonderful. But but look what he says at the very beginning of verse 2. Consider it all joy. why would was, is that the counsel you would give if you were compassionate to somebody who's going through a difficulty? If somebody comes to you and, and says, "I, I, uh, my child died of of leukemia." <laughs> well, consider it all joy, my brother. Would you say that? I dare say you would not. And yet, this is exactly what God, through the Holy Spirit, says to every one of us going through any kind of trial. So, gather yourself self up this morning with where you are and accept this as the word of the living God who says to you and to me in verse 2, consider it all joy. That is an imperative in the original language. This means it is a command. It is a command from God Almighty. It is a command from God who knows what we need that we are to regard the trial that we are in with joy. It is a command. And so everything within us wants to be sad and gloomy and pessimistic and fearful and accusatory, and God has an exact opposite counsel that we can fulfill because of the nature of faith within us, we can consider it all joy. We can consider every trial, even the worst, even the most exquisitely painful, even the long and enduring trial, we can consider it joy. And did you notice the word right in front of joy? Don't miss that one. All joy. There's no part of the trial that any of us are going through that is anything but to be considered joy. And you know how it is. Trials are amazing in their complexity and in their individual design. In fact, that's what James goes on to say. He says here, when you encounter various trials, we don't really have a good way to translate that into English. You ever take out a a tapestry and flip it around and look at the backside, and there's all these ugly threads pointing out in all these different directions, and it doesn't even look pretty, it just looks ugly, but when you turn the tapestry around, it's it's really quite lovely. That's kind of the way our trials are when we're in the midst of it. It's like the backside of a tapestry. All these threads are hanging out. Everything's ugly. We can't see how it's going to be of any wonderful value to us. There's no beauty in it, at least as we're looking at it. But this specifically says here that your trial 
being various, the idea there is actually multicolored. You can use the word multivariegated, but none of us knows what that means anyways. The trial that you have in your life is so perfectly designed with so many different nuances that are specifically crafted for your life and has all kinds of individualities that specifically relate to your background, relate to who you are, relate to the future that you're going to have, that the individually designed trial from you is here what we just call various. It's a personally designed trial, and that's why we can consider it all joy. Every trial that comes into our life comes to us from the Son of Love, etched upon our dial, traced by the Son of Love. And, and so this is then James's counsel to us as believers, and I think as we take some moments this morning together to walk through the next section in the book of Genesis, studying Joseph, our older brother, in the faith. Let's keep in mind that this is really for us to reflect our, our own lives and what we're experiencing. So, back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 41, and we'll stay in Genesis the rest of the time, using it to reflect our own lives as Christians and trials that we're going through. And I want to make a, a few points as they relate to us to start off and kind of walk us through this chapter. Number one, God begins and ends our trials. We're pretty aware that he begins our trials. We're not always so aware that he also has a time to end our trial. He who begins the trial has also determined the time to end the trial. And now that's what we will get to see in chapter 41. How God brings an end to the phenomenal trial that Joseph has been under now for 18 years. Hey, look at this. The fact is that God can end a trial by invading a man's private world. Back to verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and Pharaoh awoke. God speaking. Verse 5. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. God can invade a private world of a person to end a trial. King's heart in his hand is as a water wheel. He turns it wheresoever he wants. There's nothing that God doesn't have total access to to bring an end to the trial in your life. God can even take capable men and make them inept if his design is to end a trial, look at verse 8. Now in the morning, his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt, that's not a small number, and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them 
to Pharaoh, the best, the brightest. When you read musicians here, this isn't David Copperfield, you know, playing with mirrors. These are the most educated men of the world at that time. Kind of gets lost in translation, like they're supposed to be playing Vegas, which is where we flew through yesterday on the back, coming back from California yesterday. We got in about one o'clock last night. Yes, we landed next to the strip, and there's the big sign for David Copperfield, some magician. This is actually individuals who are trained in all the sciences of the day, all the literature of the day, the history of the day. They're also economic advisors to Pharaoh. They oversee the land, the properties, and they also oversee many of the priesthoods. These are highly trained, highly educated, and none of them, when they heard this double dream, was able to help out Pharaoh at all. Pharaoh immediately went to the people who could help him, all these capable men, and they were inept. So not only can God make the capable inept if he wants to end a trial in your life, he can also make the inept capable if he wants to end the trial in your life. <laughs> Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh. He should say, duh. I would make mention today of my own offenses, but it doesn't include the word duh, but that's the idea he had forgotten for two full years. And he does this. Look at this, verse 10. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief cupbaker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was in there with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each he interpreted according to his own dream. So here's the cupbearer, finally after two years, at the time that God has ordained, finally remembers the situation in which Joseph interpreted his own dream, got him restored into authority in Pharaoh's court, and all of a sudden, at the bright point, when God afflicts Pharaoh with a dream, this guy remembers the remarkable situation. But that's not all. God, when he's in the business of ending a trial, has unlimited power. He can do it any way he wishes to. He even takes, and I find this rather humorous. I hope you will too. He even takes the situation and makes the Pharaoh want to follow it. Look at verse 13. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Now, he's, he's so formal with Pharaoh, he refers to him in the third person. So look at verse 14. Somehow that motivated Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. Can I just ask you, please, if you are the leader of the largest and most powerful military and nation on the face of the earth, as Pharaoh was in that day, do you take the word of your chief cupbearer who two years ago you almost killed and Listen to him as he tells you about some prisoner from another land who interpreted, of all things, a dream. Are you not a bit skeptical of such things? And yet, Pharaoh listens. Most of the time, I think for us, we would dismiss such a solution to the dilemma out of hand. Yeah, yeah, thanks, pal, that way. But he actually listens to him. And he calls for Joseph. Remarkable. Remarkable. This is a prisoner. This is a young man of another culture, probably a filthy culture of weird people who's in prison for years and years, 
Maybe even the accusation against Joseph as an alleged rapist was percolating around the court, different men remembering the situation perhaps. Who knows? See, when we are in the midst of a trial and it's been going on, we, we grow neglectful that God is in control of ending the trial, that he already knows the time and the date and the means by which he will end your trial. Faith struggles with these things. Why? Because we're in pain. When we're happy, we're pretty good. When we are in pain and having to trust God with the amount of pain that we shall feel, it all gets twisted. It all gets hard for us. Having faith in Jesus Christ brings immense blessing into our lives, the promises of God, the actuation of regeneration in our lives. We are a new man in Christ. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. But trusting God with good comes natural. Trusting God with pain and suffering and enduring in that for seemingly unending days. That's a real trial. That's a real test. This is why we... We tend to get very upset with the Lord and distant. He's not taking my pain away. Where is he? What's he doing? We grow distant, trusting God with pain, suffering. Now that can be very difficult. Truth is, of course, that God never allows anything into our life that can ultimately harm us. And everything that does pass into our life has already passed through his hand of wisdom, knowledge, discernment, knowing what we actually need. And we also know from this story in Joseph that when God is ordained and determined to end a trial, it shall end. It shall end. (laughs) Some trials even end in a flash. Join me back in verse 14. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. This is such a rich verse. There's some real little gold nuggets in here. He hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. This was with haste. (laughs) And the word there for dungeon is the same word for pit back in chapter 37 where he got stuck in a pit by his brothers. And so by the text here, Moses is kind of summing up the last 18 years of Joseph's life. He's been in a pit for 18 years. And this is all of a sudden in an instant. He had no idea when he woke up that morning. And these men come, and they grab him out of this dungeon, this, and a pit-like existence for the last 18 years. And all of a sudden, in an instant, he's out. Even the word for shaving is intensive. It's probably the idea that he not only shaved his beard, which would have been interesting, I guess, for a Hebrew kid. Well, kind of a middle-aged guy now in prison. Maybe it's he shaved even his whole head, kind of the Egyptian way. So he let, took off all bodily hair. They're kind of clean freaks over there, especially in that ancient day. And then changing his clothes. The idea is that he completely changed his clothes. Nothing was left on. It was all different clothing. So he comes to Pharaoh completely clean, completely changed in clothes. 
all of a sudden, in an instant, he had no idea when he woke up that morning. I remember one time in our own lives, we were living in California. We were living in a converted garage that had two apartments, one on the bottom floor and one on the top floor. We were on the top floor. A man had moved into the bottom floor. And he had decided that what he liked to do was to play his music loud at night. We'd be so tired, and he'd be booming this thing, and you'd have the bass reverberating up from downstairs, and the kids were having a hard time sleeping. I'm having a hard time sleeping. I'm grumpy by nature. I'm really bad at night. And we went to our landlord and pleaded with him to talk to this man. He wouldn't do it. We talked to the man. He wouldn't do it. He'd laugh at us. He mocked us. And oh, the struggles that we went through. And one Saturday night it happened, and it was so difficult. Not much sleep that night. My heart raging in anger at this man and at the situation, my landlord who wouldn't fix it. Went to church that day. This next day was Sunday. Went to church, and I finally kind of got my heart right with the Lord about it. If you want this man to go on, let it go. And he had, to add to the element of it, ladies, you'll appreciate this. He had made statements about, well, it's not like I've ever attacked your wife. Yeah, so all of a sudden you're thinking about this guy's weird and you want to protect your family. And we finally kind of got, you know, the victory over it. The heart was at peace. Yes, Lord, it's yours. I trust you. We got back from church. The guy was moving out and the landlord was yelling at him saying that because his music had been on last night, he had kept up his mother-in-law all night long. The landlord was screaming at this man, and literally within 10 minutes of the time he got home, he was gone. We never saw him ever again. I was blown away. Thank you, God. Sometimes trials end really fast. So just remember, God begins your trial He also has a time when it's going to end. He also has a time when it's going to end. Second reality of our trials is that they produce wisdom in us. They really do. Now, you may never be a Joseph, but your trials, when you receive them by faith in the Lord, they really do produce wisdom in you. Look at verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream but no one can interpret it. I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, I love this, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This is the wisdom to honor God first. Trials can give you that kind of wisdom so that you are willing in the midst of the trial should God deign to allow it to go on and on and on Okay, only that I may honor you in it. And then you come out of the trial, and it is still the same. I want to honor you, O Lord. That's the power to honor God. Then there's the power to be able to listen to people and their problems and not be all filled up with just your own self and your own issues. Pretty remarkable thing. Look at verse 17. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed on the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I've never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. 
yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before, and then I awoke. I also saw in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears, withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed the good seven ears, and I was... and I. I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Look, Joseph just had the power to just stand there and to listen and to hear the man. Pretty remarkable for all he had been through. Can you imagine if his heart had been raging inside of him, he would have been wanting to say, I don't care about your dream. I want to get out of prison. But the power that he had learned through the trial enabled him to listen to other people and not be so filled up with himself. Kind of be set free from some of himself. What a blessing that is. And then there's also the power to use the lessons that you learn to help other people. And this is really fascinating. Look at verse 25. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Joseph's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. I'm going to stop right there for a second. Just pause on this verse. Let's take a look at it a little bit. God has told to Pharaoh. Special little Hebrew verb here that is used when it's used of God doing the speaking, refers to God kind of like making a promise, making a promissory statement, bringing something to effect, a, a declaration, such that If you don't hear specifically what God is saying in this situation, there are deadly consequences for this unbelief. Special kind of term. So Joseph isn't just using normal words. He's using words that kind of have a legal force. In fact, this this word can be used in a legal context so that when God says it, it's like he's legally binding the person listening to heed what he's saying. That's the idea there. So it's a strong authoritative word that this man who was just a prisoner this morning is now saying to the most powerful man in the world, but he is telling him that this is from God. In effect, what Joseph is doing is he's putting Pharaoh and his entire court on legal notice. James tells us, James chapter 1, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give you wisdom without reproach. Now let's go on with the great account here. Verse 26, Joseph speaking. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. Can you just see everybody? light bulbs going off in everybody's head? The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. That's really the end of the interpretation of the dream right there. Now watch 
the wisdom of this man, Joseph, who has been in prison for being for false accusation and being neglected. And look at the wisdom that comes out, because this is not a part of the interpretation of the dream now. This is Joseph's wisdom. Beginning in verse 33. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now watch this verse 37. Now the proposal, really the word, seemed good to Pharaoh and to his servants. Boy, not only did Joseph have this wisdom, he presented it in such a way that all these really educated, brilliant men were able to say, this seems good, this seems wise. And yet, the only thing they had to go on was a dream that Pharaoh had. This is so remarkable, but it's evidence that God used the trials in Joseph's life and Joseph's personality and Joseph's skills to produce in him the kind of individual who had this kind of wisdom. Now, you and I will probably never have the kind of wisdom that can save an entire nation from famine. Fair, fair enough. Joseph did. Give him his due. He's a remarkable man in human history. But there are areas of wisdom that God will develop in you that will be used for the blessing of other people as a result of the trials that you're going through. As you receive those trials as from the hand of a good and loving Heavenly Father, though they bring pain and suffering to your life, and though you acclimate yourself even to say, God, for as long as you wish this trial to go on for, this is my lot in life, I accept you because I believe you as the sovereign good God. And so because you believe that in the Lord, you wait, you patiently serve him even in the midst of trial. He will use that to build wisdom in you to make you more valuable to other people than you presently are. There's real hope in the midst of a trial even here in this world. Then there's something else I have to mention as well. And this reflects off of what's going on in your life and mine. That God has brought trial into your life because... Though you cannot see it and though he will not let you know it because he does not reveal to you his future purposes in detail, yet he is bringing to pass things that are far greater than you can understand. Your and my understanding of events is kind of like a little flicker of light, but what God is actually doing through the trials that he's bringing through your life is far greater. Now we have to kind of back up a little bit in the story of Joseph and understand what's going on. Joseph is in Egypt. This actually is the beginning of the fulfillment of a promise that God had foretold hundreds of years earlier to his great-grandfather Abraham. Remember these words? They're out of Genesis 15. Just listen. God is speaking to Abraham, and he says this, Know for certain, Abraham, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. 
Remember that? God is foretelling to Abraham that your descendants will be going down to Egypt. A moment later, God says to Abram, then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete. And you peel back the Joseph story and you come up to altitude at around 40,000 feet and you begin to realize that God is architecting a plan in detail with Joseph that he cannot see in all of its wonderful ways. But when you get above it, you realize that God is not only architecting the exodus and salvation of his people Israel, but he is also so importantly allowing for the sin of the Amorite to be complete. This glorious, magnificent God who oversees not only the individual lives of individual people in terms of sin and righteousness, but also entire peoples and nations is working out his own plan. And the trials that Joseph has had to go through are integrally a part of those. So, too, with you are great and magnificent plans that perhaps will not come to fruition, but 400 years after your time on this spinning place is gone. You do not know. But God is using the trial of your life in order to bring about such a good and such a great and excellent thing that He will obtain glory for it and others will obtain glory and honor at the feet of Jesus Christ as well. It's just the reality. God is working out a much larger plan than you can understand. Well, this is really an encouraging and fun section of Scripture as we get into watching what happens to Joseph as the trial is now over and how he gets promoted. Look at verse, oh, let's see, down to verse 40. Pharaoh says to him, you'll be over my house. Hey, remember when Joseph was over Potiphar's house? Remember when Joseph was over the prison all coming back. I love verse 38. Join me back there. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Holy Spirit? God's Spirit. <laughs> Guy's almost testifying to the Trinity here. Verse 39. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. Wow. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. There's so much going on in these verses. First thing he does is he gives Joseph geographic control here. Look at verse 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Even verse 43. He set him over all the land of Egypt. That's a large territory. Joseph is in charge of immense geography. He gives him financial control with an unlimited budget to do whatever he wants to do, just like your life, right? Look at verse 42. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. This is just the power to stamp any invoice, to authorize any expenditure at any moment with the use of that ring and some some wax seal. The social prestige is huge. The rest of verse 42, he clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold necklace around his neck. It's not bling. (laughs) That is authority. That is social prestige. This was not some light little thing that went around his neck. This was thick, heavy, 
gold chain. And then he gives them royal privileges in verse 43. He let them ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. Imagine Joseph in prison one day and riding behind Pharaoh with his own courtiers running ahead of him, yelling out to everybody on those dusty Egyptian streets, bow the knee, Joseph is coming. And everybody had to bow the knee. You couldn't just stand there and go, oh yeah, sure, okay. Hey, Joe, yo. Like we do in parades. Bow the knee to this man. What an exaltation. And then his, his great honor is the kind of political power that he's going to have. Look at verse 44. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So as a result of this, therefore, forget about any kind of court intrigues of other men in the court trying to undermine Joseph. He doesn't have to worry about anything. He's only accountable to one man, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has said, everything is under your control, just I'm greater. But you'll never have to worry about anything politically, anything getting in your way, no one, no thing, no expenditure. You have absolute total authority, just I'm in the throne, but you have all my executorial authority in all the land of Egypt. (laughs) And there's even religious authority given, verse 45, Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath paneah I like Joseph better myself. But, and he gave him Azanath, ooh, Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. This is all the religious, the idea that, that he gives him the daughter of a high priest to be his wife. And so he immediately ascends to the highest realm of the priestly caste in Egypt, which is intimately tied in with government, so it's all one. Therefore, he'll never, ever be undermined by the priests in all of his years of executing authority on Pharaoh's behalf. (laughs) This is huge. This is large. We try to talk about it like he became the prime minister of Egypt, but that's too small a word to use for it. All authority of the Pharaoh and the most powerful nation of the earth at that time. Well, J. Oswald Sanders once wrote, Not every man can carry a full cup. Sudden elevation frequently leads to pride and a fall. The most exacting test of all to survive is prosperity. Seen young men go into ministry with immense speaking gifts who are no longer in ministry because they engaged in year-long affairs while yet holding marriage seminars in their church. Scripture says it best of all, for not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another, Psalm 75. And I think the fact is that that no man or woman has any picture of what it is exactly that God wants to do in him or her. We have to trust God And when God puts us through trials, then we begin to see what God himself wants to do with us. We begin to see 
our life from the perspective of James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives without reproach and generously. We who are in trial desperately, constantly, numerous times every day need hope. Hope that it will be better. Hope that this is working out to something larger and bigger. (coughs) Well, (coughs) Well, here, that relates to our trials, and it's this. God heals what he wounds. God heals what he wounds. Look at verse 46. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered... All the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt placed the food in the cities. He placed city food from all the surrounding fields. Joseph stored up grain, great abundance like the sand. So Joseph has all the authority. He goes and carries it out. And then verse 50. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Azanath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of Olam, bore to him. And here you really see God heal what he has wounded. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And it's continuing, enduring source of sorrow in his life. God's made me forget it. He's healed it. And then 52, he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So wonderful, so kind, so merciful. God has been so good. Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Job chapter 5, verse 18. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Isaiah 45, 7. God says, I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Trusting God with trials that can last you years is just part of walking with God. Moses squeezed sand between his toes for 40 years in the deserts before God brought him back to Egypt. So this is chapter 41. This is really where even all of it gets distributed. All the famine starts to come. It says in verse 56, spread over all the face of the earth. Joseph began to serve everybody. Very powerful man doing exactly what he said. Now listen, God's responsibility in the trial is to teach us wisdom. Our responsibility in the trial is not to be bitter with God, but to be joyful with God. God's responsibility is to teach us wisdom. Our responsibility is not to be bitter. Now, I was originally going to do chapter 42, but... I was told earlier by Parker that I better not fall asleep because then when I'm preaching, I can't hide the, can't put the bulletin up and hide if I start to sleep. 
And we only have a few minutes left. If we were to go through chapter 42, why, it's only 38 verses. I don't think we'd make it on time. I think I'd have to skimp here. There's so much here. Well, this is the thrill of trying to do, you know, Genesis and trying to fit it all in. There's so much here. So let's stop with chapter 41. Let's just take the lessons of this chapter, which are rich, enduring. Trials come to an end, beloved. All that you're going through comes to an end. There's a day ordained when it will come to an end. Love the Lord, trust the Lord, be joyful in the Lord. One of the old Puritans talked about the best way to make a trial end faster is to be joyful in it, to acclimate yourself, or they would use the words to fit yourself to it so that you're no longer angry, resentful against the Lord and against the trial. That's the fastest way to make a trial end. Now, he also went on to say you really can't make a trial end because God is the one who ordained it. But the way that you can emotionally get there the fastest is to acclimate yourself or to fit yourself to it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this marvelous, marvelous text of Genesis 41. I was quite overwhelmed in it this morning, and I thank you for it. We thank you, Father, for the example of Joseph, like others in sacred scripture, that you have done great, mighty works in order to do something much greater than they could understand at the moment. And Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us, you care for us, call us in Christ, given us common lives and yet lives that have the glory of eternity upon them and you've purposefully and graciously and actually kindly given to us individual trials so that in the midst of our lives we might walk with you. I pray for each and every one of us that you make us to be joyful and happy, consider it all joy in the midst of our trial so that we have great faith and desire to serve you and honor you. Help us all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.